Okay, so we're looking at Ephesians, and we're looking at most of it. And uh, it's a big letter, and it has a clear, plain plan, outline, and structure. It's really profitable to see. And it gives you, basically, two headings for the whole of them. Of course, there's the introduction material. Of course, there's a bit at the end that's sort of concluding, which is really important, actually, and often gets missed. But Ephesians goes under two main headings. It's written for a church that's been born in days of conflict. A church that was born really in days of conflict. A church that's seen days of tremendous triumph, but the day this letter was written, it looked as if everything had come apart and gone apart and smashed. Everything had gone wrong for them. Paul lies captured in a Roman jail, and his life is now being perilously threatened, and he writes this letter to this church. This church that had absolutely no idea what the plan was. What's God doing? Because we know days like that, don't we? We do know days like that. Confusion and disillusionment were there in equal measure for them. Church, in that position, and Paul's letter to those Ephesians is written for dark days like that. So what has Paul got to say about situations like that? Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. There it is. Paul. You are being addressed not by a defeated, despairing disgrace of an ex-preacher. You're being addressed by an apostle of Jesus Christ. Yeah, I'm in jail for the time being, but God knows what he's doing, and that's good enough. You're being addressed by one who is sent of God. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. And he's writing to these people. And these people are not the defeated, the disillusioned, and the comfortless. He is writing to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. God's holy people, saints, it says. In the old translations, you are set apart holy people. That's who you are. The days are grim, the pressure's on. Here's what you are. You're a people set apart from God. You've been all sorts of mess, the flotsam and jetsam of humanity in that port you're living in, where everything is, you know, pretty grim spiritually. You've been all sorts of mess. Now you've been marked out. Now you've been set apart for God. And Paul will say more about that in the next part of this first chapter. What's more, you saints, in this current unsettling crisis, you are people, remember your identity, who are to be known as the faithful. Set apart for God, faithful ones, in Christ Jesus. Again, what it means to be the faithful children of faith, how all that works out in life, is going to arise again in this letter's second chapter. But the key thing, guys, <clears throat> the key thing, guys, is that you are all Saints, faithful, in Christ Jesus. It feels like you're in a pickle. In Christ Jesus. You're in a hostile place in Ephesus. You're in Christ Jesus. It's a formula that describes where we unchangeably are as Christians, unalterably united to Christ, the ones who saved us. It's the key to our safety and our security in dark days like these ones. It lies right here, being united to Christ. And that's something God has done. It's not something anybody else can mess with. By the blood of the cross, 
You turn from sin, you trusted Christ, you've been united to him. You're in the package with him. And what's his becomes in large measure ours. They are in Ephesus, yeah, but they're also in Christ. And the important thing is to be in Christ, even though you're located in a place like Ephesus is for you today. <clears throat> I know the best, uh, the scholars will say, you know, they'll have their arguments, they'll say the best and earliest manuscripts do not make mention of Ephesus in the text. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, for those who've heard that, let me quickly say this. The other text too, the recipients are told to make sure that the Ephesian daughter church at Laodicea also sees the letter, and there are frankly letters, reasons detailed in the ongoing um, opening chapters of Revelation that can account well for the playing down of the name of Ephesus, and we'll see that a bit before we end. The church is going to have a more checkered future than it's got even at the moment, for other reasons than these. I'm persuaded the recipients of the, of the uh, Ephesian church. It was a Greek colony initially, it was one of the city-states, now it's the capital of the Roman province of Asia, so it's got all that going on. It's a port, so you know about the sort of background of the place, and it is the headquarters of the Diana cult. Now we read about the, this sort of thing in Acts and where this, this took them. Um, Acts 18, the apostolic band arrives in Ephesus. Paul leaves Priscilla and Aquila there. He goes to the synagogue. He reasons with the Jews. They asked him to spend more time, but he declined. But as he left, he said in verse 21 of Acts 18, you know, all being well, if it's God's will, I'm going to come back. I'll come back and see you. And in the interim, Acts 18.24, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, comes to Ephesus. He's learned, he's got a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He'd been instructed in God's law. He spoke with fervor. He talked accurately about Jesus. But he only knew as far as the baptism of John. Repentance. So when Paul does come back, he takes the road through the interior, he arrives at Ephesus, he finds some disciples and he says... Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? He, he realised when he met with them and chatted with them there was something missing? Something wrong? And uh, no, no, there was a Holy Spirit. They said. So Paul says, what baptism did you receive? John's baptism. John's baptism. Well, he explains it all to them and uh, it goes really, really well. And he teaches for three months in the synagogue in Ephesus until they get so sick and tired of him they chuck him out. And he goes next door. He goes to the lecture hall of Tyrannus next door, which is this pagan philosopher's gaff. And he preaches there, and he speaks for over two years. And during that time, not only is the capital of the province of Asia evangelised, and a good church put there, it's a church planting church. So all up the Lycus Valley, and throughout the province of Asia, churches are planted out of Ephesus. The outcome's good. So, I'm writing to you guys with your background and your situation, says Paul. And here is the purpose of my writing to you. What's his purpose? Paul, their apostle, is in prison, so he's writing to them with all that in mind. And here's his first thought your grace and your peace. Stand in grace, live in peace. The peace that the grace gives you. Grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
There's more to it than just grace and peace to you. He's saying, be careful where you get your grace and peace from. We don't get our grace from people being tidy with us and nice to us and lovely to us. We get it from God the Father and the Lord Jesus. Where do you get our peace from? We don't get it from Radio 3, even although I did have a nice time at Radio 3 yesterday afternoon. Make sure you get the things that you need spiritually from the right place, from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Get it from there, particularly when the pressure's on. Because when the pressure's on, the temptation to find the things that will calm us and ease us and help us to walk with God might be increased find your pleasure somewhere else from God he's got a lot more to say on that subject as well but basically grace and peace get them from God yourself now then that's the people and that's Paul's purpose in verses 1 to 2 of chapter 3 chapter 1 verse 3 to chapter 3 verse 21 are all about the faith they're all about the faith What these people need in their time of pressure and difficulty is faithful Bible teaching. Accurate Bible truth. Jesus said, didn't he, you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. You'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. So what we need here in circumstances like Paul's imprisonment and their desperation of what on earth is going on and what's the plan, we don't know what this is all about. What they need is faithful Bible teaching. And Paul, in chapter 1, verses 3 to 10, spells out for them God's plan and purpose. God's awesome plan and purpose. You don't know the plan. You think we've lost the plot. You think things have come off the rails. No, 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 no. God's got a plan. This is his plan from Scripture. And Paul just doesn't deliver a theoretical, systematic analysis of the truth. What he does is he just bursts with praise. Chapter 1, verse 3 famously begins... Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his blessed us in the heavenly places, with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. And then he spells it all out through the initiative that God took to redeem and to save humanity. Is God going to drop you right here now, you Ephesians? Is he going to mess, mess you up and chuck you away? Well, he's not, because here's his eternal plan and purpose to save you, to rescue you, to redeem you. And here's all worked out, I'm not going to do the detail of that today. To this end and this purpose. Chapter 1, verse 10, to bring all things together again under the headship of Jesus Christ. That is the awesome plan and purpose of God. That through the gospel, on his initiative, not ours, because we were incapable of taking that initiative ourselves, he brings all things to a point through the gospel where the broken world we live in is brought together again. Mending in a broken world. How? As people come under the headship of the Lord Jesus Christ as his authority is known again in his broken world. Which is why Jesus turns up in Mark chapter 1 and verse 15 and says something's changed, the kingdom of God is at hand. Here's what you need to do, repent and believe the gospel. Come under the headship of Christ and trust him for salvation. Well, chapter 1 verses 11 to 14 spell out how God does that mending in us. And then chapter 1, verses 15 to 23, what believers therefore need. It brings us to the application of all of that to us in chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. So he's still teaching the truth, he's still showing them the facts of the faith that need to be applied, they need to go over in their heads, they need to preach this sermon themselves in their situation where they feel the plan has been lost, where God is not dealing favourably with them, where everything's gone to chips. He says, no, there's a plan. 
remember, look back, remember how this has been applied to you. It's been applied to you individually. Remember how God got hold of you in the first place. He's going to let you drop now. As for you, he says, chapter 2, verse 1, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you used to walk, when you followed the ways of the ruler of this world. And then he spells out three things that we were before God went to this immense trouble and took this great initiative to save us. I'm not thinking the plan has been lost. I'm not thinking everything has come to pieces and it's all wrecked and ruined. Here's what God has done. Here's where you were when he found you. Worse than you are today. Firstly, verse 1a, you were dead in your sins. You were dead. Second thing you were, you were captive. The ways of the ruler of this world, verses 2, 3a. Verse 3b, you were condemned. Like the rest, we were all by nature children of wrath. Is God going to let you drop when he's rescued you from there? He's gone to a lot of trouble to do that. And you were worse off then than you are today. However much you think the plan has been lost. That's where you were. How did God fix it? Chapter 2, verses 4 to 10. Well, <clears throat> three things again. He made us alive with Christ, verse 5. He raised us up with Christ, verse 6a. He seated us with him in heaven, verse 6b. And how did he do this? All by his glorious grace. Verses 4 and 7. There's what he's done. Is that God going to let you drop? Is that God not working to, to fulfill his plan and purpose? Of course he is. That's why he's done that with you in the first place. He is mending in his broken world. He's taking the brokenness that was in your little life and he's fixing it through the gospel all by his glorious grace. Verses 4, 4 and 7. That's how it applied to us. How does that work, mending in a broken world? Well, chapter 2, verses 11 and 22, that healed the deepest of rifts they knew of. The rift between Jew and Gentile, the biggest social rupture in the ancient world. It healed that rupture between Jew and Gentile that divided the whole of human society in their day. Now, that's great, Paul, that's great, that's great. But you're an apostle, and you're in jail, and mm, let's come to that, says Paul, in chapter 3, verse 1. Chapter 3, verses 1 to 13. Paul's part in this healing process. Surely you've heard about the administration of God's gift that was given to me, to bring God's grace to the Gentiles. Here's Paul, Jewish. The Jewish apostle to the Gentiles. How does that work? That's astonishing, isn't it? I mean, would you have done that? <coughs> I've recently been looking at, you know, there's a church, big church down in Cardiff, and we, we love them dearly, and they love us dearly, which is fantastic. Um, they, they were, they, they've been advertising for, um, for somebody to be an, an assistant there and to look after one of the church plants. And uh, you look at that and you think, they're advertising for a chief executive. You look at all this criteria for the job, and it's all chief executive stuff. And it's all matching and they're matching their situation. And uh, I, I panic about that. And they could well be right, and I, I know nothing. Uh, and they know what they need, and it's, it's not my business. But, but having said that, if you are writing the job spec for somebody to take the gospel to Ephesus and look after that little church, through all the days of difficulty he was going to have, would you pick a Jewish guy? You wouldn't. You really wouldn't. 
And, and would you pick, you know, a Pharisee, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, who was pretty hot on stuff that they weren't hot on in Ephesus at all? <laughs> no. But does he preach the gospel with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven? Yes, he does. And then you have a passionate call and concern for those people who are lost in pagan darkness to come and know and love Jesus and to be built together with the Jewish people to fulfil this eternal plan and purpose of God, to bring all things together again under the headship of Christ. Yeah, he's got that. He's got that in spades. Let's have Paul. Jewish, apostle to the Gentiles, to fulfill God's cosmic plan for which he says, I am an ambassador in chains. Yeah, you think he's going awkward? No, I'm an ambassador in these chains. And what we're doing is we're working in God's plan and in God's purpose to bring all things together again under the headship of Christ. And a Roman general in a few chains is not going to stop that. Whatever we've got, whatever is happening to us and reign us, what we need to be looking for is that opening and opportunity to be fulfilling the eternal plan and purpose of God through communicating the gospel so that people are brought under the headship of Christ and so that his eternal plan and purpose is fulfilled, the mending of his broken world, which affects things on a cosmic scale. So Paul then prays for the great big healing change to take place in them, in that fantastic prayer in chapter 3, verses 14 to 21. These precious, enlightening verses about what really matters and what makes the difference through Christian lives in a broken world. The impact of grace on a life. Paul is praying for those people, the sort of life-changing effects of grace in them, but do the heavy lifting of mending in this broken world. The things that do the unity, that undo the death and disintegration that sin does in the world. That's what sin does in the world, isn't it? Death and disintegration. The mending up that God has planned and that God is doing in Christ. How does he summarise their need? How does he assess the one thing that makes all the difference, that will change their lives as they meet with God's grace and become the solution, not the problem? Verses 18 to 19. What's going to transform their life, verses 18 to 19, is to know the love of Christ. <coughs> Some people you meet and they change you, yeah? Is that fair? You might have had the opportunity to meet some, hopefully I'm going to be meeting somebody supposedly special in a few weeks' time, and you think, oh, great, um, fine. Tomorrow I'm going to go, oh, today, I'm going to go up to London, and perhaps tomorrow I'll meet some, you know, special people, and some singular people, and some people who have been round, round the bushes a bit with God, you know, and they know the stuff. And you meet a person like that, and it can be life-changing and life-impacting. Paul is praying that these people will live lives that are impacted by having met with the Lord himself, met with the love of God. Because that's what does the changing. That they might know the love of Christ. It is knowing that love which takes the form that Paul has been describing through all this unpacking of the gospel in the earlier chapters. That is what transforms human hearts. That is what affects the eternal plan and purpose of God. There is the big plan for meeting the love of Christ through the gospel of his grace 
to change human lives and hearts to the extent that they are brought together under the headship of Christ. And what that does is it affects something at a cosmic level in the world. Here's the plan. Now, what's that going to take? Love the plan. The plan sounds great, doesn't it? What? <laughs> sounds great about the plan. What's it going to take? Paul is about to spell that out in chapters 4 and 5 and 6. It's going to take three things. So chapters 1 through 3 are telling us this gospel, how it works and how it fits the whole big plan. And then he turns to the people in Ephesus who are under, under the cosh, feeling the pressure, and he says, these three things grasp these. These are the outcome of that gospel, and these are being the outcome of that gospel. These are the things you need to work on and ensure for this eternal plan and purpose of God to be fulfilled through you as a church and in the world in which you're set. Here's the plan. Here's what we do. Here's where the rubber of all that gospel hits the road. Three things. Unity, purity, and spirituality. Remember that. In chapter 4, verses 1 to 16, Paul deals with unity. He pleads with them to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Right? And we know that verse. What it means is this. The Spirit, through this Gospel, has already created unity. Hold on to it. Stand fast with it. Make it happen. Not that we have to create it. He's made it already. We have to not let it be disrupted. The unity that the gospel has created by bringing all things together again under the headship of Christ, we're not going to go in there and do the devil's work and start chewing it up. So, we sit in a room with some people who take a very different view of the world from us. But they love the Lord and they're keen on his word. Yeah? <laughs> it's a struggle. <laughs> They may be people from different cultures and different traditions in Christ across this world, and you've got to sit in a room with them. And you know, I, I okay, confession time. I have sung metrical psalms and accompanied with Scottish Presbyterians. Okay, that's not my thing. <laughs> Tomorrow, God willing, I'll be amongst people who go through the rigmarole that is associated with you know Episcopal church practice. It's not my thing. Praying out of a book doesn't to me express the relationship I have with my Heavenly Father through the cross of Christ. The access I have to his presence by the Spirit. But there it is. What can you do? He's my brother, I'm going to be united with him, work on the unity because of the gospel and because of the big plan and the big purpose. That's the first thing, unity. Chapter four, verses one to sixteen, and then you can come up again in a minute. Unity, 4, 1 to 16. Purity, 4, 17 to 32. Now what is it that's busted things up in this world? It's sin. It's sin that's broken the relationship between humanity and the created God. And what happens in the Gospel is that the relationship is restored as the sin is dealt with. But integrity with that means living a life of purity, living for a life of purity. 
because it's a sin that's mucked things up in the first place. Making sense? That's where it comes from. It doesn't come from some block standing at the front of the law book in his hand going, you're all a lot of sinners, right? and you're all wicked, you're going to try harder. It doesn't come from that. It comes from this gospel. This is amazing grace and love of God. And what it's doing is this. And what it needs to do in me is this. And one of the things is unity with all those other diverse people who, who also love this Jesus. It also means, let's get shot of the stuff that's been breaking and disrupting in this fallen world. Let's get rid of this, the, the stuff that brings death and disruption into God's glorious creation. And in terms of that, as a Christian, I'll be working for, for purity in myself. Unity, chapter 4, verses 1 to 16. Purity, chapter 4, verses 17 to 32. Now it goes again through those two things in chapter 5. It's got unity, purity, and now it's going to go purity, unity. <laughs> you see? So the purity thing is, 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 is really worked on, and the unity thing is really worked on too. Unity, purity, purity, unity. Purity in social relationships, chapter 5, verses 1 to 20. I had a lot I wanted to say about that. Uh, how's time? I think you're okay. Yeah, I won't say too much about it. <coughs> fundamentally, Ephesians 5, 21 to 6, 9 deals with unity in fundamental social relationships. How the gospel's truth impacts how we live in the areas of marriage, family, and workplace. And it has three pairs. Husbands and wives, parents and children, workers, slaves in that context, and employers, owners in that context. It goes, it opens with this fundamental statement. The primary premise in chapter 5, verse 21 that comes out of the Gospel comes out of the submission of Christ and the wonderful stuff he's done and the way that God is bringing all things together again under his headship. Ephesians 5, 21 says, Submit to one another. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then it works it out in those three areas. Marriage, family and the workplace. It's got to happen. It's got to happen there. The pairs of mutual responsibility start, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, who not only submitted himself to the will of the Father, with the consequences of which we're all aware, but whom we worship, whom we revere, by submitting to one another, out of reverence to him. I do not submit to my wife, when the need arises, or my husband, as the need arises, because it says in the book I've got to do it so much, as an act of worship to the living God who submitted himself to sinful men and to their pleasure to pay the price of sin that I might go free and that his broken world might be mended. Three things we were saying arise out of this gospel that we've spelled out from chapters 1 to 3 of Ephesians. Unity, purity and spirituality. And this is now chapter 6 verses 10 to 20. Because as you try to line up with this whole gospel way of bringing unity back into a broken world under the headship of Christ, you have an enemy who will come against you. 
There is one who bred this disruption in the world because of sin in the first place and doesn't want that disruption spoiled for him. So, chapter 6, Paul says to these Ephesian people, chapter 6, verse 10, he says, um, put on the full armour of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Again, verse 12. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. And here's the mistake we so often make as believers. Things go wrong, things get disrupted, things happen to break up the plan as best we understand it. And we assume that the people that are doing that are the people we're looking at. Paul says, it's not the people you're looking at. We wrestle not against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces in, of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, you know, what you're going to do is you're going to take spiritual weapons in a spiritual battle against a spiritual foe. And that, for the Christian, is what spirituality is about. It is not about sitting cross-legged on the floor and going on. It is not about really loving the great English choral tradition and, and going along to listen to it on a Sunday afternoon in some big stone building somewhere. It is not wrestling against flesh and blood, but taking your stand against the world and the flesh and the devil. And how do you do that? You do it by gospel means. Go through the full armour of God and you will see how all of those things arise directly from the stuff we teach about salvation. Gospel, gospel things. It is the gospel that is the need, that needs to be applied. Verses 13 to 18, the gospel is your equipment. So, it's a spiritual battle we're in, verses 10 to 12. It is the gospel that is your equipment, verses 13 to 18. And the preachers need your prayers, verse 19. Because it is as the gospel is proclaimed that this good news of the kingdom moves forward and the broken world is healed and restored by the good news of Jesus Christ. Paul is not embarrassed to plead with them like this. One person particularly singled out for prayer because one category of person leads the repulsion of the enemy's attack, the person that God has said, that guy's to preach. Pray for me, he says. Somebody read verse 19, please. And for me, that the utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fiercely, fearlessly, as I should. Paul is not pleading with them to make sure he gets out of this one. There's a plan. What that plan is, is, is going to happen. You know? Don't plead that I'll get out of this. Pray that I will make this gospel known. Pray that I may declare it fiercely as I should. Because that is the plan. That is the purpose. In this confusing, apparently chaotic situation. God has a plan and a purpose. Through the preaching of this gospel, by the means we've explained, and by purity, unity and spirituality, being at the heart of his people's motivations and thinking. The eternal plan and purpose of God is fulfilled in Christ. 
Jobban lovely little thing at the end. That's it. I mean, that's the classic. One lovely little thing. Just look at chapter 6, verses 21 to 24. Paul is in prison, chained to a wall, or chained to some soldiers, or whatever it is. He's, you know, his life's under threat. He's with the Romans. The pagans have got him, and they don't like him. Is there anything they like to? I'm sending Tychicus to you, because I'm concerned for you. In his position, in his situation of extreme personal suffering, Paul mirrors an attitude he sees in the Lord Jesus Christ as he hangs dying on a cross, and he self-sacrificially makes provision for others that their faith might be helped and strengthened, not weakened. That's great, man. Look at the sacrifice in that. Jesus hanging on the cross looks down at John and says, Son, mother, mother, son. Yeah? Isn't that great and glorious? In the situation of, you know, you've got enough going wrong for yourself, sacrifice yourself the way Jesus did. Paul says in that example, for the benefit of others that they might not be tricked up. Tychicus, the dear brother and faithful servant in the Lord, will tell you everything so that you also may know how I am, what I'm doing, and what you can I'm sending him to you for this very purpose so that you may know how we are and that he may encourage you. <laughs> great. Great. And then Paul finally directly addresses them about their current spiritual priorities. Peace to the brothers and sisters. Look, you're going to want to panic. You're going to be in a disrupted uh, situation. Peace to you. Peace is a priority for the Christian. Gosh, we need to learn that. I need to learn that. Peace is a priority for us. Because of Christ, and because of the plan, and because of his purpose, and because of what he's done, peace. Peace. And uh, what else have we got? Love with faith. Love with faith. From God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Right at the beginning, in verse 1, he said, get it from the right place. Make sure you get what you need from the right place. And then he blesses them with grace. Grace, the grace that makes all this happen, that fulfills the eternal plan and purpose of God, that names this broken world. Grace to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ. Wait for it, wait for it. With an undying love. Why is that important? Because when the pressure is on, and when it looks confusing and chaotic, the love of many grows cold. They will need peace because of the panic impact of Paul's imprisonment. The devil capitalizes on panic. They'll need love because all too often the impact of pressure on people is they start looking out only for themselves and conflict breaks out under the pressure, which is the opposite of God's eternal plan and purpose that we're doing all this for in the first place. Grace is what's going to carry them home, but the bit about undying love. Have you read Revelation recently? Have you read Revelation chapter 2 recently? First of the letters to the seven churches in Asia Minor. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You persevered and endured hardships for my name. 
and have not grown weary. You got that bit? Listen to this bit, verse 4. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love that you had at first. That's the very last thing you said to them at the end of that Ephesian letter. You've forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you've fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. And if you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. The love you had at first. I was hoping to be able to put on the wall for you a photo of Ephesus. It's a ruin. No joy. Now, I don't know about you, but I, I find the way that Paul puts all that together really helpful. I find it really helpful that he deals with the situation where you think the plan has been lost and everything's come apart. I think it's helpful to see how he does that in terms of the gospel, in terms of the, the three priorities of unity and purity in a spiritual view of life, and how he then cares for them, and how he says that the important thing is that you should know the love of Christ and that you should persevere in that love.